I saw an old community announcement film the other day from about 1947, which was a piece about road safety. The message was being delivered by a man in a mortarboard hat and academic gown writing things on a blackboard. It was the style that dominated road safety education for many years and still does now in some cases. The formal lecture to students who just have to sit and listen as to what they were doing wrong. We have seen some significant changes in education in general and in road safety in particular. Should we move away from a fear-based formal lecture and if so to what? Traffic and transport started very much in the realm of engineering, but a recent conference in Brisbane was titled the International Conference on Traffic and Transport Psychology. Is this just academic dreaming or is it the right direction and does it have practical applications? Dr Barry Watson gave the keynote address at the conference. Dr Watson is the Chief Executive Officer of the Global Road Safety Partnership, which is hosted by the Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies in Geneva, Switzerland. It is a great pleasure to have him on the line. Barry, the whole issue of road safety internationally is a big issue. Indeed. Um, Unfortunately, road crashes and particularly road, the fatalities and injuries that arise from them is still a major global problem. Really does represent a humanitarian crisis that for many years was unrecognised. Fortunately, now it is recognised, but To give your listeners an insight, at the moment it's estimated that about 1.25 million people are killed on the road every year around the world. About 90% of those people are being killed in low and middle income countries, whereas in high income countries, generally the road toll has been coming down. And the problem, particularly in low and middle income countries, is that many of them are due to strong economic development, experiencing high rates of motorisation, The road infrastructure uh, and the vehicles are having trouble keeping up with it. And as as an example of this, uh, about half of the world's road fatalities are actually the vulnerable road users. They're the cyclists, the pedestrians and the motorcyclists. So we've still got this major development that, uh, this major problem, I think, that road deaths. So in many cases, I think people are seeing them as the inevitable collateral damage of economic development. But we've got to turn that thinking around because it's, as we know, road crashes are preventable. We've learnt that lesson from countries such as Australia and now the need is to really achieve these uh, changes that we've seen in our country in other countries. You talked about it as a global vision to do that and we're now talking about international aid, not just for things like hunger and water, which are very important, but also for this particular issue? Yes, and in fact that... I think what really signified a major change in thinking about road safety was back in 2011, the United Nations, for the first time, really placed a lot of attention on road safety. And in fact, they launched the Decade of Action for Road Safety. So this was the 10-year period from 2011 to 2020, which was aimed at reducing the number of world road fatalities by 50% to what they were otherwise projected to be. Now, that was a, a, a big positive step forward. More recently, um, last year, the, the United Nations then released the Sustainable Development Goals. Now, the background of this is that up to that point, a lot of the world's development and aid was really being directed by the, what we'll call the Millennium Development Goals. Now, unfortunately, road safety wasn't one of those. It included things like malaria and other public health problems. But as a result of road safety not being there, it wasn't getting that necessarily that international attention. 
The good news is the Sustainable Development Goals, which are operating from 2016 through to 2030, have road safety mentioned twice. There's one um, target in there which is about, which sets out the, the goal of reducing road fatalities around the world by 50%. And the other is focusing much more on what needs to occur in cities. And there it's very much about ensuring that road safety is part of the changes we need to see to ensure that cities are, are as livable and achieve the mobility and, but also the environmental goals of society. We often have very simple ideas about what should be done. Everyone sitting around a table will tell you that the big issue is or, or that. First world solutions, are they practical in third world countries? Is there an easy transfer of possible solutions? That's a good question and, and the answer unfortunately is complex because it very much depends on the nature of the initiative and uh, the circumstances. So I, I'd have to say I think in the, uh, the vehicle and road infrastructure area, um, often the transfer is relatively straightforward. Having said that though, often the, it's, it's still a challenge because the, you're, you're often trying to bolt on uh, infrastructure in a, a circumstance where there's not the, the overall support for it. I'd have to say though in the behavioural area where we're looking at interventions whether it's education or enforcement the situation is a lot more complex because you've got whilst human nature and people are the same everywhere you've got very different circumstances and as an example in Australia we've been very successful with the combined use of fairly rigorous police enforcement around things like drink driving and speeding supported by public education. Now that's often seen as the hallmark of um, Australia's success but in many of these low and middle income countries the police just don't have the necessary resources to run intensive uh, policing campaigns. Uh, they often don't have the equipment. Uh, unfortunately sometimes the philosophy of enforcement is much more about apprehension and catching offenders rather than deterrence which has really been the hallmark of what we have in Australia and although it's often in discussions the elephant in the room another problem of course is is corruption and we've been overall I think a very positive thing about road policing in Australia is the high public regard that it's held in so if you look at something like random breath testing surveys show that around 95 to 98 percent of the population support it unfortunately um, in many of the low and middle income countries there's not a very high gut regard for road policing. Uh, some of it relates to the history of these countries. And so we are experiencing challenges in implementing these programs that we know have been effective in countries like Australia and the Netherlands, these behavioural programs, into low and middle income settings. It doesn't mean it's not impossible, but it means that more work particularly needs to be done in preparing the ground. So the organisation I work for We've been doing a lot of work assisting road police in low and middle income countries uh, to de develop better policies and procedures, to uh, train their, their, their um, personnel, uh, to really lift the professionalisation of road policing so that it's, and, and really increase the focus to be about deterrence, not just catching people. So it's a real psychology, a la the title of the conference you're at, isn't it? That we understand where people are at and what the driving, pun the pun, forces are all about. Is that an important direction that we've moved in terms of road safety? I, exactly. Um, there's an old saying in road safety that people drive as they live. 
in other words, that the way people um, behave on the road is really in many ways just an extension of how they behave in the rest of their life. So, for example, if someone's got, for example, a bit of an alcohol problem, it's likely to uh, manifest on the road. If they are perhaps a bit of an angry or aggressive person on the, in their general life, that will tend to flow onto their road. Now, linked to this, we, we've, changing behaviour is a challenging thing. And unlike, for example, something like uh, road and vehicle infrastructure where it can be very costly up front to do it, but normally once you've got it in place, although maintenance is required, it doesn't necessarily require a lot of ongoing effort. In the behavioural area, the real test is to make sure that you are bringing about sustained changes in behaviour. And really what that means is that programs like traffic law enforcement and education really need to be based on sound behaviour change principles. Rather than being based on what people think might work, they, they really need to be informed by the psychology of behaviour change. And, and this is an area where, unfortunately, a lot of people have misconceptions. So just to, just to pick a couple, a common thing I hear in many countries, including the, the lower middle income countries now where I work, is that surely um, if you increase the penalties for a certain behaviour, have a, a stronger sanction, a stronger fine, surely that will change behaviour. What we actually know from our experience is that it's not just the severity of the penalty, but for example, it's the certainty with which it's applied and how swiftly it's applied. And in fact, having very severe penalties can be very counterproductive if there's not this strong certainty. So what we do in this area, and, and in fact, a lot of the success we've had in Australia is because these behaviour change programs have been based on sound uh, principles, uh, on, on the theory from this area. And, and really, as a discipline area, traffic psychology is one that's grown over time, but a lot of the, the good work has been pioneered in Australia. That now, unfortunately, though, is not often evident in many of the low- and middle-income countries where decisions around enforcement and education are often based on what appears to be common sense, which unfortunately can be found wanting because it may not actually reflect what's the best way to go about changing behaviour. Well, common sense assumes that if I tell you something, A, you'll hear the message clearly and B, you'll change accordingly. Whereas, A, I might not hear the message of, the, uh, of what you're saying at all. For example, if you say to young boys, you could increase your risk of dying, that's almost a challenge. That's almost a, 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 a thing that you might aim for. The, the thing, I think, in one road safety area was to say you could kill your sister or your brother. In other words, it was changing the message to understand where the person was coming from. And, and I think what you've uh, really highlighted there is an important thing that there are what we call individual differences. People are different. And a lot of research has shown that a one-size-fits-all, for example, in our education messages, is not what we need. So to give you an example, um, for example, the use of fear-based appeals, um, they've always been popular. But what's interesting is there's, in psychology, a phenomenon known as the third-person effect. This is where you'll take a message and, and you'll assess it as being good but of being more relevant to other people. And I think often what happens with fear-based appeals um, is that people think, oh, that's a good message, but they're thinking because it'll be more relevant to others than themselves. And in fact, so what we've found in some of the research we've done in the past is that particularly young males often like to show this third-person effect where they'll say, oh, that, ad, that message is you know, more relevant to others. 
and that there's some evidence that, for example, humor, humorous-based approaches will work better with young males than, than fear-based approaches. So really, we, we, we need to be tailoring our approaches and our messages to the target audience, and, and particularly those high-risk audiences. And young males are, are, continue to be a major problem, although, and in fact, at the conference today, we've heard a lot about how programs like graduated driver licensing, which is now in place in most of the Australian states, has been effective, but particularly young drivers as a whole, but particularly young males, still are overrepresented in crashes, and we need to be developing approaches and implementing approaches which are relevant to them and, and really are based on, as I was saying, sound behaviour change principles. I read uh, your paper, The Beliefs Which Influence Young Males to Speed and Strategies to Slow Them Down. Quite often the young males think that something is relevant, like they'll impress their girlfriend, when in fact that's not the case at all. And so scaring them isn't the point, but perhaps bringing them into reality is a better approach. Exactly. I think this is a lot of this is about, particularly with young males and other groups who are, you know, have a propensity for risk-taking, is that they often won't necessarily be thinking through how the, the, the full impact of their behaviour on the road and how it can impact on others. So as an example, um, I remember doing some work looking at motorcycle riders and motorcycle riders, there's a strong camaraderie among them. And what we realised when we were developing a, an education program for them was that appealing to them about the need for them to be safer, to be honest, didn't hold a lot of credence with a lot of riders. But when we talked to them about the need to look after their mates and to uh, to be to, you know con- considerate of the of their needs of the people they were riding with, that had a lot more salience for them, and I think really activated a community and collegiate concern, which mightn't otherwise be the case. So it's another example of where uh, a key thing we need to do in this area is look at the underpinning beliefs that um, different groups have about particular behaviours and and make sure that whether it's our educational enforcement approaches are are tailored to, to meet the needs of that group. Can I just say in conclusion, I think that that also has a much broader consequence and potential benefit of that sense of enhancing a positive community rather than just giving a very negative message. It, it has a broader social benefit to my mind. Is, it, do you see that that, while you might not measure that necessarily, but that could be considered a very positive part of what you're saying? Indeed. And, and in fact, on that note, um, I think it's, there is a tendency for us all to be negative about driver behaviour and the behaviour of others. But it's really, I think, important to note that over you know, 20 or 30 years, as our road fatalities in Australia have come down, we've seen major improvements in behaviour. If you look at something like drink driving, for example, back in the early 1980s, if you looked at um, across Australia, about one in two of all the drivers and motorcycle riders who were killed had a BAC of around 0.05 or more. So effectively illegal. And through a, a series of programs, lowering the BAC limit and then random breath testing and, and the efforts of the police to maintain that um, high visible uh, police presence, we've seen drink driving come down to now only be about 25% fatalities. Now that's a phenomenal reduction. It's you know, halved the problem. And in fact, in public health circles, it's often cited as one of the best 
examples of, of, of a public health intervention. Having said that, it's still a problem and, and it's still a major contributing factor to crashes. So I think it is important for us to reinforce to the community that there has been a lot of very good improvements in behaviour, whether it's around seatbelts, child restraints, uh, you know, our helmet wearing rates are fantastic in Australia, the, the drink driving behaviour. I think there's also been improvements in speeding, but there are still areas of concern. And, and by the way, this is where the psychology comes in too. These will change. And I think the great change that's occurred in my lifetime working in road safety has been the way that particularly um, smartphone technology has really, as I was saying, people drive as they live. So these people that you see who are often very involved with their mobile phones when they're in their general life, not surprisingly, they intrude into the, their road, road use as well. So whether it's as pedestrians or, or car drivers. So the nature of the problem continues to change as society changes. And we need to therefore be uh, mindful of these changes. And once again, I think the, the role of, of psychology is to be really understanding uh, the, the interface between society and mobility and how uh, road transport is really just an extension of the rest of our lives. The same holds, for example, with drug use patterns. As drug use patterns change in society, then the nature of the problem on the road also changes. Barry, that's absolutely lovely. I, I would love to think that the road safety campaigns on drink driving helped fuel a broader understanding of how we need to have responsible drinking in the community in general. I've caught you at the last part of the first day of the conference and I appreciate your time greatly. Thank you very much. Thank you and thanks for the opportunity. And that was Dr. Barry Watson, the Chief Executive Officer of the Global Road Safety Partnership, which is hosted by the Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies in Geneva, Switzerland. Barry spent much of his early part of his career working in Australia, and he was the keynote speaker at a recent conference in Brisbane titled Traffic and Transport Psychology, offering a very deep an important understanding of where and how we must head to try and remove this global catastrophe of deaths on our road, which he said average about 3,400 people a day.